Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll discuss the rise of maternal mortality rates in the United States. There's been a lot of effort to look at the factors behind these reasons. We don't think it's related to things like the rising C-section rate, factors having to do with immigration or rural poverty. Plus, the capabilities of a region's only level one trauma center. We have a trauma surgeon, a trauma attending, a fully trained surgeon available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And how to prepare your child for a mental health appointment. Looking, knowing your individual child as to how he or she does with, with regards to um, timing of, of waiting for things um, is, is a good general principle. We'll get a selection from our healing muse and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, what it means to be a level one trauma center, plus how to prepare your child for a mental health appointment. But first, maternal mortality is decreasing throughout the world, but not in this country. We'll find out why. As the global death rates for maternal mortality have fallen, there remains concern that the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world where maternal mortality rate has risen despite improvements in health care. Well, here with more on this disturbing trend is Dr. Alexandra Spadola. She's Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, specializing in maternal and fetal medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Spadola. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So it sounds like the U.S. is an outlier among the rich nations of the world in terms of maternal deaths. I guess there, there had been some recent data earlier this year suggesting that there's actually been a rise in maternal deaths, but I think you would like to explain that that's not exactly the case. Tell us about it. So there's good news and, and bad news. Um, part of the story internationally is that uh, you are correct. We, we rank much lower than many high-income countries for maternal mortality, and uh, currently about 60 uh, in the world, 60th place. So when you say we rank lower, you mean we have a higher rate than some of these other countries. Exactly. The good news is that some of the trend in increasing rate does not appear to be a true finding. Uh, in September, data showed that um, rates had risen from the last official maternal mortality rate in 2007, as we struggled in this country to all be on the same page with how we're finding these deaths in terms of our vital statistics records and how each state was adopting both new guidelines and how new diagnosis codes were helping pick up more deaths than ever. So the news this week is that that seems to be more of the case that we're finding uh, more death concurrent with pregnancy rather than caused by pregnancy. So, so let's clarify that just a bit more. So in other words, are you saying that it has to do with our data gathering methodology or that there are tr this truly does reflect a higher mortality rate? 
So maternal mortality rate, how we're compared globally to other countries, is based on deaths that happen during pregnancy and in those first six weeks after pregnancy ends. So this is um, only a death that happens as a result of pregnancy or is aggravated by pregnancy, not deaths that are incidental or unrelated to pregnancy. So that's an important distinction because we know deaths can occur say, from a motor Car vehicle. Right. Exactly. So, um, so we're really trying to capture how pregnancy um, impacts a woman's health. Um, and it's uh, the good news that we've gotten better at picking up um, uh, these deaths in the United States, um, but that may have made our numbers um, look worse than they actually are in terms of, of that fact. When, when you compare the rate, actually, though, the, however we measure the rate, assuming there's some uniformity, I'm hoping, across across countries. Um, I read a statistic that the rate in the United States um, in 2013, which is a recent year, um, was more than triple that of Canada's. Yes. So um, there's been a lot of effort um, to look at the factors behind these reasons. Uh, we don't think it's related to um, things like the rising C-section rate. We don't think it's related to factors having to do with immigration or rural poverty. Uh, we don't think it has to do necessarily with some of the concurrent medical conditions in pregnancy in terms of people who've analyzed the t statistics. But um, we're still looking at the ways in which the um, women's uh, health has changed over the past decade um, in terms of in influencing those statistics. Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit more in terms of what might be the causes. But let's talk more about specifically in terms of the data. What type of rise over the last 20, 30 years has there been? I mean, I've, I've seen something that said at 25 years ago in 1987, there were roughly seven deaths per 100,000 live births, deaths of mothers per 100,000 live births. And then as recently, I guess in 2011, that number had more than doubled, almost, almost 18 deaths per 100,000 live births. So again, certainly um, historically, before 2003, death certificates in the United States had no indication of whether there had been a pregnancy um, in recent weeks, days, or even the past year. So that's been part of that story, is that we are just finding um, more deaths than we did in those prior decades, and, uh, and again, trying to understand um, better what's going on. Um, well, what I was going to ask you, though, is bottom line is there is going to, there's some issue with the way the data is collected, no question. But the fact is, as a rich country in the world, as you say, we rank 60th. So that's a significant fact in and of itself. So I wanted to get dig down a little bit deeper as to you've alluded already to some of the things people have discounted as being part of that picture. But let's talk about what do you think or what has been suggested to be the causes for this. So we know that the top causes for maternal death in this country, as in many other countries, include um, obstetrical hemorrhage, hypertension, cardiac disease, pulmonary embolism, sepsis, and then things that are rare but very fatal, such as amniotic fluid embolism. Now, those are things that are taking place during the birth process prior to the birth process or in the period postpartum after the birth process? 
Or is it all three? So at different times during pregnancy, um, there are different causes of mortality. So women who um, die in the first trimester, say, are dying more um, from things like hemorrhage from ectopic pregnancy or um, infection. Whereas we see uh, women around the time of, say, a term birth dying more often from hypertension, amniotic fluid embolism, or cardiomyopathy. And that's taking place, is it during the birth process, or is it just kind of around the birth? It's a great question. So we see that about three-quarters of women die in the postpartum period, and some of those are within hours in terms of um, severe obstetrical hemorrhage. Um, But some of those are in the weeks after where a woman may come into an emergency department complaining of a severe headache, um, be discharged and go home and have a stroke or or fatal um, uh, intracranial bleeding. So are those things predicted? I mean, are they predictable? In other words, when you talk about the underlying causation, obviously there have to be some comorbidity, some things that predispose people, excuse me, to this type of thing. Before you answer, though, I want to say, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with obstetrician-gynecologist Dr. Alexandra Spadola. We're talking about the rise in maternal mortality, or the fact that um, maternal mortality is high in the United States. So I asked you, basically, you know, why do these things happen in terms of are there underlying conditions that play a role? So there absolutely are. And some of the things that we see factoring into maternal mortality in this country are changes in health trends, an aging maternal population. More so women, m- more women are, are having um, children in their 30s and even 40s. Um, we know that around half of the maternal population is obese, and that's very different than it was um, in prior decades. So that, that underlying or that comorbid factor of obesity, perhaps even diabetes, is that Diabetes, hypertension, and even small populations like women who have had excellent success in repairing their congenital heart disease as children, they're a new population who are now having children and unfortunately are at high risk for having heart failure or cardiac events that can be lethal. So some of the successes of our health system in an earlier phase may actually be contributing to a higher risk for mothers. Absolutely. We do know that some of the most severe maternal mortality or morbidity can happen in a low-risk population. And these are well-known factors such as obstetrical hemorrhage and amniotic fluid embolism. What causes those things? Why do they occur? Well, um, not all of them are entirely unanticipated. And um, one of the success stories in this state um, has been working on safety bundles. These are guidelines or checklists that physicians and hospitals can use Um, uh, to help uh, recognize risk factors um, for, say, obstetrical hemorrhage or thromboembolism and to try to um, see early signs and uh, treat in ways that are evidence-based. So it strikes me that there are a lot of possible underlying factors. For example, we, we started to talk about these comorbid factors like obesity or diabetes or the fact that someone had a heart problem as a child, which was repaired, but may make them more predisposed to problems during childbearing years. But there are other factors such as poverty and access. So are there certain populations that are more at risk other than ones that have underlying medical conditions? 
An excellent question. And when we look globally um, with the new sustainable development goals, really the focus is on the holistic approach. So this is looking at the state of maternal health. And I think even though um, there are differences in how we approach uh, maternal health um, in areas of different resources, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. When we look at the inequities in this country uh, in regards specifically to the alarmingly high disparities in maternal mortality, specifically to the African-American population, we see that, um, according to recent data, say, in our own state, in New York City, um, a black woman has a over 12 times likely uh, to die um, uh, during pregnancy than um, a non-Hispanic white woman. Um, and some of the issues uh, that have been looked at are, where is that woman delivering? Does who owns the hospital that she delivers at um, influence um, uh, her likelihood of, of death in, in um, adjusting for all the other risks that we um, know may influence? So I think the point here is that there is some disparity in the standard of care. And you've alluded already to the fact that there some places are attempting to put in place um, not even in terms of standards of care, but in terms of safety bundles and taking a look at the possible underlying risk factors for moms. But that's not necessarily happening in a, in a standardized way throughout the country. And I guess I'd like to segue quickly into what you see as solutions to the current situation. I mean, we can't eradicate poverty, but can we potentially raise the standards or standardize the care in such a way that there would be a diminishment of some of these risks? Right. So ACOG, um, our American College of OBGYNs, is very focused on the types of strategies and guidelines that look at that evidence-based standardization and disseminating that um, throughout the country. Um, and then again, we're focusing on that lifespan of the woman, the preconceptual health, access to contraception, safe abortion care, things that will help women um, with chronic medical conditions um, have uh, avoid unintended pregnancies and um, be healthier during pregnancy, and then a smooth transition back to her regular health care providers so that events that happened in pregnancy uh, can be recognized as risk factors for her health going forward in her life. I mean, obviously, it's a very... Uh when you talk about the fact that there are all these factors, whether they be comorbid conditions, underlying problems, and the fact that there's problems with access or disparity in care, these are very large issues that then can translate into this problem. And they're very large you know, problems to tackle. But clearly, women's health overall needs to be addressed in a way where it's, there's equ you know, equanimity or equality across all people in this and country. And even though we're talking about maternal mortality rates, we want to recognize that why women are more likely to um, die from homicide or uh, substance abuse as also part of the ways that their interaction with the healthcare system in pregnancy may help um, uh, their survival. May, may help their survival? Um, May uh, these are moments in which uh, can we influence um, a woman's life positively? So even though they're not directly pregnancy related, um, can we change those rates as those are part of those late maternal deaths in the first year? 
Very good. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Alexandra Spadola. She's Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She's specializing in maternal and fetal medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Coming up next, what it means to be a level one trauma center. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's Health Link on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, accidents can happen anywhere and anytime, and the consequences can be grave. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, unintentional injury kills more people between the ages of 1 and 44 than any other disease or illness. But here in central New York, we can rest easier knowing that we have right in our community a level one trauma center. Here with more on all of this are Dr. William Marks, Professor of Surgery and the Division Chief of Trauma, Critical Care, and Burns, and Registered Nurse Jolene Kittle, the Trauma Program Manager at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Marks, I want to start by helping us understand what exactly do we mean by a level one trauma center? What is that? Well, there are three levels of trauma centers, a level one, a level two, and a level three. A level one trauma center is typically an academic institution, usually associated with a university, that provides all of the care that a patient needs when they're injured. Okay, so we are level one. Is that a superior type of care to any other trauma center levels? It's different care. Um, You know, we do research. A level two doesn't do research. We can reimplant limbs. A level two typically doesn't, and a level three trauma center is a hospital where you're gonna where you're gonna stop. They're gonna do a little bit of resuscitation and move you. Oh, so that they're not fully equipped to take care of you. They're not fully equipped, but as a level one trauma center, there is no reason to leave. So it's the highest level of medical care for both adults and children, and it's around the clock, twenty four seven. That's right. So, Jolene, what standards? Does someone does it, does a level one trauma center have to meet? I mean, where are the standards determined? And I mean, is it something that's a very high bar to meet? It is. It's so high that that is my entire job. Um, and we actually have a second person who does pediatrics, and that is really our our full time job is to ensure that we are ensure, meeting the standards behind the scene. And where do the standards come they from? They come from the regional sources, the regional resources for optimal care on trauma from the American College of Surgeons. So what happens is the American College of Surgeons um, comes every three years to do a site visit, which they're coming to re-verify us in February, and we're very excited about that. And they um, make sure that we are meeting all of the standards, and then uh, the state designates us as a trauma center. So we're both verified by the American College of Surgeons to meeting all the standards, which there's like 250, I believe, and then the state then also recognizes us as, um, as meeting that. Well, I guess the question that always comes to mind to both of you is, How is the care that you would provide in a level one trauma center different than someone might find if they were just 
taken to another area hospital emergency department following an accident? Well, we have seven surgeons who have trained in trauma and critical care. We, we, we like to do the work. Um, we don't have big elective practices that would interfere with our being available. We have a trauma surgeon, a trauma attending, a fully trained surgeon available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And um, we can be at the side of a patient's bed in under 15 minutes. So you really have kind of highly specialized care available 24-7. Right, very specialized. And, in, in addition to that, they can move the patient to the operating room immediately because the operating room is fully uh, staffed and, and readily available with also trauma-trained staff there. And to start, the emergency department also has trauma-trained emergency physicians and also emergency nurses and other staff as well that are all specialized in trauma. So when we use the word trauma, we're throwing this around, just help us with a kind of a medical definition, Dr. Mark. So what is trauma? Well, trauma can occur from a motor vehicle crash, a gunshot wound, a stabbing. You can fall out of your tree stand. You can fall and get injured with your snowmobile. And then the injuries that occur from that can typically involve every body system, the head, the face, the chest, the abdomen, the extremities. And we have a specialist available for all of those injuries. Um, 24 hours a day. So Jolene, give me an example, and, and Dr. Marks just gave us some examples of the kinds of wounds and things you see. Give us a little, you know, I, I read somewhere that you actually even have people coming in with horse and buggy accidents, farming accidents. We do. Because of our 14 county reach that spans from Canada to Pennsylvania, we have a really wide variety of cases that we see. We see, you know, gunshot wounds and stabbings and things like that in the nearer vicinity, but also we see auger accidents, and which is a farm a piece of farm equipment I didn't ever know until I was in a position such as this. So our, we see boating accidents in the summer. You know, it really does go by season. We see, um, you know, snow, um, snowmobile. snowmobile, snow blowing accidents in the wintertime, tree stands, people fall off their roofs, um, hanging Christmas lights in the wintertime. Mm. Um, so it really, it does vary by season, and it's a very wide variety. Do people... Um, have a choice? I mean, I guess the question I would ask is, so so you, you find yourself in an accident and often we'll call 911. What happens then and does the does the individual have the choice as to where to go? They, they really don't have a choice anymore. Um, New York State has had a trauma system since the early 1990s and at the time when the trauma system started, a patient could say, well, I want to go to my local community hospital. The state has changed the uh, emergency medical services laws so that they have to take a patient to a trauma center if they meet trauma criteria. And the trauma criteria the state uses were developed by the Centers for Disease Control. So it's a national standard that the state uses. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with trauma surgeon Dr. William Marks and trauma program manager Jolene Kittle. We're talking about the benefits of having a level one trauma center in our community. So Jolene, but if somebody is driving themselves, let's say, to the hospital, what do they need to understand in terms of the difference that you might find? I asked you this a little bit before, but if you were going to, um, you know, you might have had an affiliation with a prior hospital sure. from some other elective problem, elective surgery or whatever, and you feel more comfortable in that particular hospital from your experience, what would they 
lose in that choice, for example, or what would they gain by coming to the level one right. trauma center? When I wanted to start, too, by saying Dr. Marks talked about the different levels of trauma centers. And while there are level twos and level threes out there in the state of New York, there are no other trauma centers of any level in our area except for us. So by coming here, they... As Dr. Marks also spoke about earlier, there is a trauma surgeon, so there's only trauma surgeons at Upstate, and they are here immediately available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You will never have to wait for radiographic imaging. You will never have to wait for the operating room. We also have a specialized ICU that takes care of trauma patients that no other hospital has as well. So from pre-hospital to the services we provide through their inpatient stay and also rehab, we provide care for them from start to finish. Yes. And we also have um, specialty trained nurses in the emergency room who do regular trauma CME course, continuing medical education courses. And the surgeons are required to have 48 hours of continuing medical education every three years. So you really, basically, as you mentioned, you have trauma RNs, you have ED staff, you have ICU RNs, pediatric mm -hmm. ICU RNs. I mean, yes. it's, everything is geared to this kind of important timing issue, which I want to get to in just a minute. But before I yet do that, how far would you have to travel to get to another trauma, level one trauma center, the, Jolene? Um, either Albany or Rochester. So we are, we are it. As I said, we have 14 counties, which include 28 referral hospitals, and it's about 1.7 million people that we serve. So I was getting back to this whole idea of the timing, because I read somewhere in terms of trauma that, and I know in terms of stroke, timing is crucial as well, but in terms of trauma specifically, that there's this thing called the golden hour or yes. something about timing. Can you help underst well, uh, us understand sure. that? Sure. In the, in the late 1960s and early to mid-1970s, um, there were really no designated trauma centers in the country. And some surgeons who devoted a significant amount of their career to trauma care went out and looked at what were called preventable deaths. And these are deaths that would, could have been avoided if you had simple trauma care available, somebody to stop the bleeding, somebody to uh, intubate a patient to protect their airway, somebody to take them to the OR right away, somebody to drain um, a bleed in the brain. And having, you know, having that capability is important because the longer a patient bleeds or doesn't have an airway, the worse their outcome is. So within that hour, uh, from the time they're injured till the time they get to definitive care, the rate of survival increases. So basically what you're saying is timing is everything in, in trauma as much as it is in stroke. It in is. Exactly. Cases. So, Jolene, help us understand what happens when you arrive with an ambulance or even on your own to a trauma center. Take us through it br briefly, kind of an overview. So I want to start out from before you arrive. We have our resources here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, whether or not a patient comes, we are always prepared to take them. And then when you arrive, you will be greeted by trauma-trained emergency physicians, trauma-trained emergency nurses, and then they activate, um, prior to the patient coming, which is really important, a trauma activation, and the trauma surgeons will come as well, and they work collaboratively with the emergency physicians. And then if you require neurosurgery, they will be there within um, 30 minutes, usually a lot sooner, um, or orthopedics that are also especially trauma-trained, they will be there within 30 minutes or sooner. And then if, whatever radiographic 
radiographic diagnostics you need, such as CT scan. That's 24 hours a day, and they if there's anyone, there's two right in the emergency department, and they will um, clear it for the trauma patient immediately. And the patient can also be into the operating room if necessary within 15 minutes. Wow! And then from there, or if they don't require the operating room, they can go to our specially um, our special ICU that's for trauma patients as well, which is also unique to our hospital. How is the kind of the support within the community of medically other medically trained first responders? How does that work kind of hand in glove with you? For example, you know, the whole idea of the paramedics or the EMS trained personnel, they're also in a sense part of your team. They are they? part of our team. So we have an outreach coordinator that works for the trauma program and he works with the EMS community and helps educate, it helps, you know, provide like the linkage between the trauma center and then we also participate in the regional emergency medical committees to have that linkage as well. They're invited to participate in our quality initiatives. So we really are partners. So just again in, in a real life terms, what are they doing to uh, foster the whole kind of care continuum? In other words, they're working as a part of your team in a sense and as soon as someone as soon as they're someone's in their ambulance, they're already doing some of these kinds of things that Dr. Marks was yes. talking Stopping about. Stopping the bleeding is Huge, um, and then you sound like you were coming. Yeah, and and the EMTs we have here, they intubate patients. Mm -hmm. They can protect the airway. They can start an IV if the patient need. You know, if a patient needs one, they can stabilize the back and the neck if you have a spine injury, so you don't become paralyzed. Uh, they get people out of the vehicles and get them out of the vehicles. If it was a car. If it was yeah. a car, without. Um, Further, you know, injury. further injury, mm -hmm. and they know what to do when they see a gunshot wound, and they know what to do when they see a snowmobile accident. So in a way, that's a very important kind of, as I say, hand in glove. They yes. basically, they're right. preparing, and it's an ongoing continuum within that golden hour right. to right. get that patient to the level one trauma center, and then you guys right. take over. They so can also they activate our trauma activations. So that's Which means huge. What? They activate our trauma system. So if they identify a level one trauma patient out in the field, they can act, they call the radio to the emergency physicians and says and say I'm on route. We're on. We're on our and way. And we will activate our system in response to that. Which so that means huge. you're waiting. Right. You're standing we there have, physically waiting. Yeah, we have three different levels of trauma activation. There's a level one, which somebody's really injured, and everybody's standing there right away. A level two, they're injured badly, but they don't need intervention immediately, and then there's the patient who kind of you want to see as a consult. Right, so it's not that kind of an emergent kind of situation. Right. Well, I just want to know in the little bit of time we have left, where do you see us heading in the future very quickly? Where do I see us heading in the future? I think we're, we want to maintain our level one verification from the American College of Surgeons. Um, we are getting out into the community more and trying to um, prevent trauma from occurring. So there's a lot of prevention there's efforts. There's a lot of prevention efforts. We have courses to, to teach kids how to drive and avoid risky situations. We have uh, stab wounds and gunshot wounds that we've been teaching EMS how to help so you're really kind hospital. of trying to cover our mm -hmm. entire community. Right. I have to leave it there, but I want to thank you both so much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. William Marks, Professor of Surgery and the Division Chief of Trauma, Critical Care and Burns, and Registered Nurse Jolene Kittle, the Trauma Program Manager at Upstate Medical University. Thanks again. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Next up, how to prepare your child for a mental health appointment. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's Health Link on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, despite our best efforts, the fact remains that there continues to be a stigma associated with psychiatric illness and treatment. So, what if your child is in need of a mental health consultation or treatment? What do you need to know to prepare your child and yourself for such a visit? Here with more on this is Dr. James Deemer. He's Assistant Professor of Psychiatry specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry, and he's the director of the Child Psychiatry Fellowship at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Deemer. Thanks so much for coming in. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, I mean, it must be kind of a a scary proposition for both when a parent recognizes that there's a need for their child of any age to have a psychiatric evaluation or some kind of mental health consultation and potentially therapy. Tell us, what are the overriding or kind of universal principles that should cross the parent's mind in terms of preparing a child for that kind of an event? Yeah, so I think one of the things that a parent should do is take a deep breath and kind of pause and reflect as as to the emotions that Uh, the proposition of having to refer your child for mental health care uh, might bring forth within within yourself as a parent. Um, I I think um, most of us, if we are bringing our child for an ear infection or strep throat or something, um, we see it as, um, you know, there's there's very little emotion other than concern. Or Uh, even a sense of responsibility for that event. Exactly. Um, However, um, as you mentioned, with the stereotype with, with mental health issues, there continues to be uh, a feeling in, in most parents that in some way they failed their child or in some way they're responsible for their child's suffering, which um, couldn't be further from the truth. But in, it, beyond that, I mean, I, gr- I grant you that's crucial, and, and obviously somehow I think your message is they shouldn't see it that way. Yes. Um, how then, though, to approach the child? Now, Obviously, it's going to be developmentally determined. You're not going to deal with a two-year-old or a four-year-old the same you might a teenager in prep for something like this. But are there some kind of overarching principles? Yes, I think honesty uh, with your child, um, you know, uh, verbalizing that you have concern um, about whether it be your child's uh, difficulty sleeping or um, uh, issues with sadness or tearfulness. Um, and or even aggressive behavior. Exactly. And as the parent, just owning that and saying, I have concerns about this behavior, and I would like for us to see someone so that we can get help as a family to try to, to uh, make things, make your life better and improve the quality of your life. So the notion of doing it as a, as a collaboration or a team is an important underlying principle here in terms of the communication. Definitely, because I think most children, um, when they're approached with the idea of having to see someone uh, for mental health concerns, most children automatically um, feel um, like they're being punished or blame themselves in some way. And uh, it's very difficult when um, a child feels that way to convince them to go in for help. They, they more or less want to avoid that. Um, they feel as if they're going in to be called you know, called forward um, and in a way um, 
all of their sins or, or mistakes are going to be put out in, in, in a group setting, and everyone's going to judge them in a negative way. So I think it's, it's critical that when it's approached initially, that it be approached as um, uh, trying to learn ways to be helpful as, as a family and for the adult to, um, to role model their own concern and um, role model their own vulnerability in that way and to normalize the fact that, um, that everyone at different times in their life sometimes needs someone to talk to about their feelings or someone to, um, to get new ideas as to how to make safer choices. So you want to kind of set those positive expectations and even maybe suggest that um, we're going to see a doctor for feelings or this type of doctor talks to families to help solve problems so everyone will feel better, that kind of thing. Exactly, and you can even oftentimes... Um, and see your primary care provider first, whether it be your, your pediatrician or family practice doc. And um, that person's often familiar to the entire family. And um, start the conversation there um, and with, with the family practice doc, facilitating um, the fact that they do have a concern and that um, just as they're a doctor who cares for children, that he or she knows other doctors who care for children in different ways, who have issues with uh, needing help uh, dealing with feelings that get too big, or um, anxiety that, um, that, um, that the youth is having trouble managing. And then they can also emphasize the fact that this doctor isn't going to give shots. And, and when, they go to, when the child goes to this doctor, all they need to do is talk, play, and listen, mm. and, which are things that most children find to be um, safe and, and familiar. How about timing? <clears throat> How soon before an appointment, in other words, it strikes me, just kind of common sense-wise, you might not want to set up a lot of anticipatory anxiety months before, for example. So what, what do you recommend as far as the timing? Yeah, a lot of that depends upon knowing your, your child and their individual temperament. There are some kids that, uh, if you have an anxiety disorder, um, some kids will ruminate on the idea that they'll count down uh, and, and get this anticipate, anticipatory anxiety that the appointment is going to occur at a different time. Um, so those, those kids sometimes giving them less forewarning can be helpful. Um, there are other kids that would prefer to have lots of time to prepare and to talk about it and, um, you know, kind of process the idea in their own way. So I think looking, knowing your individual child as to how he or she does with, with regards to, um, uh, timing of, of waiting for things, um, is, is a good general principle. And underlying all of this really is this idea of honesty being the best policy. I mean, honest, you're putting a positive spin on it, but that you're not hiding. You're not saying we're going out for lunch and then they end up showing up at a, uh, you know, a psychiatric appointment. Oh, for sure. Um, and a lot of it is going to depend upon the nature of the child's presenting uh, condition. So in child psychiatry, there's generally two main categories of conditions that we treat. One are called externalizing conditions. Those are conditions like ADHD or issues with aggression. And the other are internalizing conditions. Those are conditions with sadness or anxiety. So, Can I just stop you there for one sec? So when you say externalizing, it means that their, that their behavior, that the way they express this problematic behavior is by acting out in some way as opposed to the internalizing type where they they express this unhappiness or this problem by acting within or harm self-harm in a sense or feeling sad or repressing their anger that kind of thing right so with externalizing conditions people around the youth are more likely to be aware of the impairment with internalizing conditions 
really when push comes to shove, it's the youth who really know, only knows authentically how he or she is feeling inside. Although, of course, other people around them might notice changes in someone who's depressed or anxious, but internally the, the youth senses that something is, is off and, and, and senses that they need help in some way. So with, you started to make a point, though, about those two um, types of problems. How does that impact yeah, so when you're, if you're preparing your child to get help with, with an externalizing condition, they're, they're less likely to have insight into the fact that there's a problem to begin with, and there might be a little bit more resistance. Um, so you might need to just anticipate that and um, kind of just validate the, the child's concerns. Um, so if they're, if they're kind of saying, I'm not doing that, I, I refuse to go, you know, you can say, you know, I understand that you're upset and that you don't want to go to this appointment. However... Um, we're concerned about your school performance or we're concerned about the choices you're making. And out of this concern and love that we have for you, we want to take you to see someone who can help us um, figure things out. And all you need to do at the appointment is just come. And if you're uncomfortable talking, you can just play or just listen the first appointment. So you lower the expectations for that child. Whereas with an internalizing condition, in some way, not always, but oftentimes, the youth will um, either they'll be tearful or they'll um, be talking, uh, have negative self-regard, different things that the youth will, will say to the parent that will better lend itself to saying, you know, you did mention that you're struggling with, with these feelings. I would like to, for us to go and get help. And the youth would be more likely to, you know, to be willing to get help because they're more aware of the distress. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. James Deemer, and we're talking about how to prepare your child for a mental health appointment. Um, Age-wise, let's do this kind of briefly because I, I have another series of things I wanted to ask, but obviously it's different as to how you'd approach a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a five- or a seven-year-old and then a teenager. So just give us kind of an overview as to developmentally how you might handle these situations. Sure, yeah, so, so generally the, the role of a parent um, at different stages of development tends to, tends to be different. Um, so with a younger child, the role of a parent uh, tends to be more of a comforter. Um, whereas the, the next step, um, when ch children get a little bit older, the parent tends to be more of a teacher and then more of a coach where you just reemphasize different skills. And then during adolescence, more of a supporter. So, so generally with a younger child, when you're um, encouraging your child to get help, some of it's going to, your main approach is going to parallel, you know, what your role would be in any developmental stage. So for a much younger child, when they're going somewhere new, they're going to um, meet someone who they're not familiar with, you want to provide more comfort and just kind of contain some of those feelings. When a child gets a little bit older, you, you, you're going to teach more. You're going to say, this is a special kind of doctor who helps children with feelings. They're not going to give shots. Here's what's going to happen at the appointment. You give them some sense of predictability. There are going to be toys there. Um, maybe um, prior to the appointment, you can speak to the provider. And I encourage children to bring their own familiar toys, um, that kind of a thing. And then during adolescence, um, where the task is for the teen is going to be more autonomous, you're going to more create a, um, more of a conversation um, where you're going to want to listen to, to the teen's concerns. There might be some pushback as to not wanting to going, not wanting to go. You're going to want to validate those concerns, and then you're going to want to just encourage them to try it. And, and most of the time, 
um, a, a skilled clinician will find a way to be attuned to that teen's uh, resistance. The, yes, and we'll find a way to work with that resistance and very slowly um, make the child feel safe in, in session. And, in, and, and then the teen um, will, will slowly, at their own pace, um, buy in to the idea of, of getting, getting therapy. So basically, um, can you help us understand, I think for the benefit of our listeners, what they might expect if it were they bringing their child of any age in for, I mean, how are these appointments structured? What, what could they expect to, to see or feel in those environments so that they could then also be better prepared to help their child? Yes. Yeah, so one of the, one of the principles that I think is, is critical in child psychiatry is, is the importance of assessment and understanding. So I, I would say as a parent bringing your, your child into an appointment, don't be in a hurry for that provider to put a label on your child. Um, t- uh, give it a little bit of time and uh, respect the assessment process. And so the assessment process um, can be done in several different ways depending upon the clinician who you see. Some will break the assessment up to three or four sessions where the first session might be just with the adults where um, the uh, caregiver and, and uh, their significant other perhaps will be invited in um, without the child to, um, to tell their story, to tell their concerns. Um, and then during that time, the, the uh, clinician might gain more information about the specifics of the child and might be able to give more specific guidance as to how to um, encourage the child to come for the next session. And then there might be a session where the clinician observes the parent and child together. And then typically there's a last session where feedback is given regarding how the clinician understands the child's difficulties and what an appropriate biopsychosocial treatment plan is, meaning there's going to be, there could be medication, there's going to be social modification, and there's going to be some form of psychotherapy, kind of a well-balanced approach. Um, Sometimes, and oftentimes in clinics or other settings, you'll get a a 90-minute initial appointment, and it'll be broken up into four points or four sections where they'll observe the parent and child together, they'll meet alone with the child, alone with the caregiver, and then together again to kind of share some initial impressions and come up with a plan. But my, um, the thing that I, I really want parents to know is to, is to take your time and, um, and allow the assessment uh, process to occur so that it's done effectively. And I guess the point is that they can be reassured that whoever they do go to is going to be keenly aware of some of these issues that you've mentioned, the stigma, the resistance, and the, or the fear that might occur in both the parent and the child, and that clearly they'll be accommodating to those things. And it's really not a scary thing. It should be something that is seen, as you mentioned, a positive collaborative thing where everyone is going to hopefully feel better as a result. Definitely. And I I think um, uh, expectancy, the expectation that that the child will will get better um, and that the supports will be helpful and um, just trusting in the resilience of the child and I can't tell you the number of children who I see who um, just with, with time and with supports um, and with some, some supports from school and home um, are able to do quite nicely. And so there, there should be a sense of expectancy that your child um, will improve. I think that's great advice, very helpful and hopeful. My guest has been Dr. James Demers, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry. He's also the director of the Child Psychiatry Fellowship Program at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. 
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Poetry gives us many gifts, and one of them is its compression. The poet creates an entire world through what seems to be the briefest of lines. Yet as we listen, we see the precision of the architect painstakingly drawing the plans for what will be our temporary home. I have two poets today who offer us a glimpse into families, and in particular fathers. First is Buffalo poet and associate professor of English, Rebecca Keaton. Her poem is called Killing Time. He's a mean old dog, barks the nurse's aide, while my mother and I are shuffled to the common space meant to replicate living rooms not foreclosed by age. Every second Sunday I pay the back taxes, she believing it matters, like the mile-high lemon meringue or coconut cream she brings. When he is washed and tucked into the chair, I know to read aloud the times still delivered to his door. While she smooths his hair, I comb the cafeteria for coffee, toast, anything other than sweets. Returning, my buttoned coat is a ringing bell. My mother leans to kiss the battered cheek goodbye. Then, the old man's face becomes a beautiful enclave of thought, transformed like my mother's egg whites beat earlier that morning. Sweet, delicate peaks of love that whisper in my father's ear, you are never old. You are still the sly dog of your youth, calling your lady pumpkin and reading the morning paper in your Cape Cod kitchen. The sight of her, still in her robe and slippers, frying breakfast, stirs his blood like his coffee's swizzle stick. No wonder my father licks his lips, everything exactly what it seems. Next is Sarah Kennedy Valent, who received her MFA in poetry from Columbia University. Her poem is called Offering. On the snug raft of your upper arm and chest, the baby babbles as we blow her kisses, caress her rippling thighs and clam-shaped ears. The more we worship her, the more lustily she kicks till she is so enwrapped she flips herself over. And you, who have struggled to name the dearest things, your wife, kids, New Hampshire, whisper, isn't she grand? For two days now we have searched for signs of life and exulted over glimmers, the rippling of toes on your left foot, the sensation of fingers on your right. We have needed swollen plum-colored limbs by the hour, allowed strangers to pierce your belly, send mud-brown liquid through the rivers of your body. And I, your daughter, have, cleaned, have cleared a thicket of tubes to offer my daughter hoping she'll hold you here. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore pelvic floor disorders in women, plus common urologic disorders in children, and what you need to know about erectile dysfunction. 
If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on air. And if you'd like to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.